Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, if you're not careful, I'll break all your pencils in half. Oh, I'll stick my finger in your mustard. <laughs> uh, we have a, a very interesting film to talk about this week. One that I think we need some expertise to help decipher. So joining us on the show, our third woman, as it were, Tori Potenza is joining the show. Film critic, horror movie aficionado. Hello, Tori. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to talk about this movie more. Yeah, it, it there's a, there's a lot, a lot, a lot to unpack with this film. I, we probably need many hours and probably many people on the show to really get to the bottom of this film. But before we get there, before we talk about its director and all the interesting things inside of this film, I want to hear a bit more about you, Tori. Now, we stumbled upon you as you were writing a bit about Cronenberg which is a hint towards this week's film. But just going into sort of your love of films, where did that all start for you? Because you're obviously you're a film critic now, you write uh, film critique. Where did this love of movie start for you? I think I've always been a movie lover. Um, not horror. I didn't actually get into horror till I was like in my 20s. Uh, so it's actually a little bit later in life that I discovered horror. But um, my parents are big movie people. They always went to the movies together. Um, actually, they I remember they when I finally watched The Fly, they were just like, oh, we saw that in a drive in together when we went on a date. And so I was like, oh, perfect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like Star Wars was a big thing in my household. My dad loved it. So I grew up on that. Um, a lot of like, you know, fantasy kids movies, like cartoons, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I've really always been a big film fan. Um, and I guess didn't really start thinking about it more until I was a little older and started writing about movies and realized like, oh, this is this is a thing I know a lot about and can use in some sort of <laughs> useful way and write about it and talk about it uh, in a constructive way. Um, so, yeah, I've been writing uh, about Cronenberg um, since 2018. That's like my first series that I started. Um, and I mean, he like is one of the directors that like really got me into horror um not even because of the horror elements specifically but uh because of a lot of the like philosophy and uh like sex and gender politics within his movies so uh so yeah and what was the switch that was flipped with i guess horror generally and then cronenberg specifically yeah i mean so I moved to Philly from uh, Boston when I was like in my early 20s and didn't really know a lot of people here and was like pretty anxious and just stayed at home a lot of the time. And so I just ended up like finding a comfort in watching horror movies on my own. Um, and body, body horror always seemed like something like, okay, I can deal with some horror, but like that's <laughs> too extreme. Like Cronenberg is too extreme for me. Um but then I started watching things like uh, The Thing and Reanimator and kind of seeing how body horror can be fun. It can be really suspenseful and then just getting really interested in like the the art behind practical effects. Um, and then I saw a Videodrome and that was like really when a light went off in my head of just like, oh, there is like so much 
so much more going on in these movies than I think people talk about as opposed to just being like, oh, yeah, they're gross out horror movies. And I'm like, oh, no, but there is so much interesting, like philosophical stuff going on here. And I'm a nerd in general, like a history, like sociology nerd. Uh, So like all of these concepts and ideas coming through in horror movies um, were really the draw for me. Um, And now I'm like, I'm fully there. I can I feel like I can watch any horror movie now. And do you have a favorite Cronenberg film? Videodrome is probably still my favorite, but Crash is like slowly like eking up the list because I just think that is such an incredible movie. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like maybe I need to have that experience uh, and get that, that first sort of Cronenberg under my belt. Well, no, not my first. I've had two, actually. But like maybe watch the films that you had to sort of find my way with it because I've, I've never really got an attenuation with horror. It's never really sat well with me for some reason. It's like the one thing I shy away from i don't get scared easily i don't run away from films i've only run out of one film in my life and that was brendan fraser's the mummy <laughs> <laughs> i was terrifying. young it terrifying <laughs> when that mummy came to life i was out of there despite the yep. fact it's on the poster like yeah i did know it was coming it's it's the name of the film but i think before maybe we we've almost fully introduced the film this week but just talking a little bit more about film and film critique when did you decide that you want to start doing it perhaps like professionally? Yeah, I mean, I um, so my master's in hist- is in history. Um, like I said, I'm a huge history nerd. And I mean, I, I mostly just love being in school and learning mm-hmm. a lot and reading a lot. And so I kind of came from this academic background um, and tried to write like film pieces here and there as I was kind of figuring out, like I finished my master's program and I didn't know what to do with all of this extra just like brain space I had. I was like, what do, what do I do with this? How do I like use this for something? Um, and eventually met some uh, really great people um, that are now um, the people that run Movie John. And um, at the time they were writing uh, for Cinema 76 and they were just like, hey, you should start sending us some stuff. And so I wrote like bit pieces here and there, but then um, saw Videodrome and like all of these ideas came flooding out of me. And I was like, oh, this is like what I want to be doing. This is what the kind of stuff I want to be writing. I can kind of relate to that as a English major who um, did not have a huge career boom in terms of jobs being offered to him with his uh, ability to interpret classic literature. Uh, I can totally understand how you would be drawn to film because that's kind of what drew me was honestly my academic experiences. And uh, talking about spy films has been kind of a weird avenue, but it works. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how you realize how connected all of these ideas are. And you're just like, oh, I studied this one specific thing, but I'm finding little bits of it in all of these other areas. And it's like, it's kind of cool to just like see how everything is connected. It's been something that I think has been a real gift to us over the last sort of three years at this point is, you know, people think that James Bond is like the be all and end all of spy movies. But I think I've come to learn and appreciate that it really like maybe they did it the best, but they certainly didn't do a lot of the stuff first. And it's been eye opening for me in that in sense of, and hopefully for the listeners too. Um, but then speaking of spy movies, you're a horror movie aficionado, as I said, but what are your spy movie credentials? I need to figure this out now. Like, what, what, I, what are your some of your favorite spy films that you've seen? Ones that you perhaps have gone to in the past? Ones you're fans of? Yeah, I mean, like, I have to say, James Bond specifically, I haven't seen a lot of the older ones. Um, sure. 
it isn't until recently for the podcast that I watched one, and I can't even remember the name now. It's the super racist one that takes place in New Orleans. Oh, Live and Let Die. <laughs> yep. So I saw Live and Let Die, but my intro to Bond specifically was Casino Royale. Um, mm-hmm. One night I was hanging out with my dad, and he put it on, and we just had a blast watching that movie together. Um, and then, of course, Mad Mickelson, like did Hannibal and a bunch of other like weird, creepy horror things. So it like worked out perfectly. Um, but I did really love Craig's Bond because it seemed different. Like I grew, up, I was a '90s kid, so I grew up with like Pierce Brosnan, um, and I like knew like what those movies were and I saw trailers for them even though I didn't watch them I just kind of remember like you know the osmosis of growing up at a certain time and seeing those things um and Craig's Bond uh I really liked just because he seemed like like grittier like whenever I saw pictures of Bond I was like oh he's just always clean cut and wearing a suit like what else is there and like the opening of Casino Royale where he's just like running through like a jungle after some guy and he's sweating and he's disheveled and he gets beat up a lot and there was something like I don't know very like humanizing about that that I really loved um so I've actually only seen, I think, the first three of the Craig Bonds. I need to, like, watch the newer ones. Um, Just stop. But... <laughs> Just stop. Okay. <laughs> Great. They make choices. You're they fine. definitely make Trust choices us. that yeah. you wouldn't uh, necessarily expect. Mm. So I'd recommend them in that regard. Um, no, it's interesting how, like, I, too, grew up with, like, the Brosnans. I was born in 1980, but, like, Brosnan fell right in my teenage years. And it's like, Brosnan... You know, I think Bond fans were really into those movies. I definitely was excited to see them all, but they never really tapped into the zeitgeist in a way where like everyone really thought they were cool. It feels like Craig was more the person to do that. Yeah, it is interesting how it didn't, I don't know, Craig just felt more accessible for some reason. When I saw it, I was like, oh, this is great. I didn't really know Bond films were like this. And then I think we, like my dad took us to see like the second and third one in theaters together. So that became kind of like a family thing too. Um, And I think like now I'm like blanking on any other spy movie that's like ever existed. But one thing I was thinking about recently, um, I really loved the show Andor, the new Star Wars show. Mm -hmm. And specifically a lot of that, was that like background espionage like mm-hmm. stuff that's going on um and it's pretty different for star wars like star wars doesn't typically like delve into that it's usually a lot of like lightsabers and th- and you know the force and this wasn't that but there's something so interesting about the I don't know, just like the backroom dealings and the political talk, like those sort of things. Like, and maybe it's just as I'm getting older that I find that really interesting. But I find those elements really intriguing in like spy narratives now. I, I definitely got a few films I could recommend you that are in the same vein as Andor. Oh, cool. For sure. That'd be great. And speaking of spy films, there's actually another David Cronenberg spy film. That's true. Mm-hmm. And that would, of course, be Scanners which we will cover at some point in the future, but definitely has a lot of spy ties as well. Oh, I was actually thinking about uh, Naked Lunch, which also has some spy elements to it. That is one of the few I haven't seen. So should I be adding that to our master list to cover? Yeah, you should. It's very weird, but it's an adaptation of like William Burroughs' novel and... um, you know, he he's on drugs the whole time, but like thinks he is a spy. It's so interesting. <laughs> oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what we want. Tori, yes. just you've proved your credentials before we've even started. <laughs> you're, you're already a gift to us and the listeners. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But I think now we have more or less queued up this film. 
So let's let's get to it, Cam. What on earth are we talking about? Yes, we are talking about the 1993 David Cronenberg film M Butterfly. Now, I I think it's oh, maybe an important question to ask off the top. Are any of us familiar with Madam Butterfly? I haven't seen it, Cam. I read the Wikipedia synopsis. Great. Sorry. <laughs> I remember it them doing an adaptation at my local theater and my sister was in it maybe as like a background character, but I don't know anything about the story. <laughs> okay, so the the diehard like uh, opera fans have already dismissed our opinions. So that's good. We we, we they've left. Yes. See <laughs> see you later. Thanks for coming. Um and in terms of like our previous experience with the film, I've never seen it, so I can't really comment. Cam, had you seen this one before? This was, uh, there's a few Cronenbergs I haven't seen, but this was among them for sure. Okay. And now, Dora, you had written about this film, which is sort of how we found you, really. Um, I suppose to sort of, I don't want to go into sort of your thoughts too much on the film, but when did you first experience M. Butterfly and sort of what were your initial sort of responses to it? Um, really only a couple months ago. Wow. Um, I'm trying to wrap up my Cronenberg series. I only have a couple more of his movies that I haven't seen. Um, so I'm really getting into some of the like later stage Cronenberg, which does veer into less horror, um, until Crimes of the Future. Um, but yeah, it was only a few months ago that I saw it. And in my head, I was like, oh, this is just like one of the last ones I need to get through so I can finish my series. And um, I'm trying to write a book about all of these Cronenberg ideas I have. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to like pull that together too. Um, but it's one of those things where I love him as a director so much that even if he makes something that isn't horror, I just need to like trust that I'm going to find elements of this that will I will really connect to. And just immediately like fell into the world of this movie um there's something about like the way people talk in Cronenberg movies that I love there's so much rich dialogue so this immediately just like washed over me and I was like oh this is beautiful and it's strange we don't talk about this more in I think you know we talked a little bit about this like in general as like film fans but also as a Cronenberg movie I remember when I was young I used to cut movie poster advertisements out of magazines and paste them in like a book i don't know why i did this and i don't have any of these books anymore but i remember i had the m butterfly poster in this book and i at the time had no idea what the movie was selling in terms of the poster and i feel like that's kind of been the case for many years i really didn't have a good sense as to what this movie even was really until i sat down to watch it well, it doesn't really say anything with its title. It's not like, you know, sabotage or explosions <laughs> or anything like that. It's M. Butterfly. That's, it's, it's, it's provocative. Like, it, it doesn't mean anything particularly. So, okay. Well, let's talk about the letterbox.com synopsis. Here we go. M. Butterfly. Passion, power, revenge. In all their majesty. In 1960s China, French diplomat René Gallimard falls in love with an opera singer, Song Liling. But Song is not at all who Gallimard thinks. Mm. Oh, well, yeah, it's not one of those very long ones, I appreciate that. But uh, it's quite the tale when you boil this one down. So maybe you did need a few more words. But okay, 
let's let's put this one together because we're talking about a film that's a spy romance by the looks of it. Mm-hmm. It's not a horror, so it's not a classic Cronenberg. So, Cam, what on earth is Cronenberg doing in the, the realm of spy movies? Okay, so this one began with the writer David Henry Huang, who was an L.A.-born playwright who graduated from Stanford University and the Yale School of Drama and began writing plays based on sort of the Chinese or Asian-American experience. And then he did one uh, called The Dance and the Railroad, and they did a televised version of it that aired on TV in 1982. And that sort of got, I guess, his early credits going in terms of screenwriting, because he was credited, obviously, with that adaptation. He also worked on a TV movie called Blind Alleys with Pat Morita in 1985. And he created the story M. Butterfly in 1988. And it was influenced by the 1904 Giacomo Pacini opera, um, Madame Butterfly, and also the real-life 20-year relationship between French diplomat Bernard Bersicot and Peking opera singer Shi Pei Pu. And you'll, we'll talk more about that story because it very much informs the events of this film. But that relationship, again, 20 years, and they were pardoned after six years after being imprisoned for the espionage activities that are chronicled in this film. So the play debuted in February of 1988 in Washington, D.C., before moving to Broadway, where it played 777 performances until the year 1990. And the initial version starred John Lithgow and B.D. Wong. Um, and occasionally they, you know, during the run, John Lithgow left, and he would be replaced by actors like Anthony Hopkins and Tony Randall. Hmm. And the play was a real critical darling. It won the Tony for Best Play and Best Featured Actor for B.D. Wong. It also won for Direction, and it was a finalist for the 1989 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So yes, uh, the M. Butterfly play was a very big deal. I mean, it, it's uh, basing a lot of it off of, of you know, a highly esteemed work in Madame Butterfly, but yeah, that, that's a lot of accolades for a play that just sort of started in Washington, D.C. and was immediately transferred over to, the, to Broadway. Uh, and also having names like you know, Anthony Hopkins and John Lithgow, even in the 80s, maybe before the heights of some of their careers, it's still big names to have. And obviously it, the the story attracted these heavyweights of acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like the material was so rich that film producers were very interested. Mm. And some of the people initially putting their hat in the ring to tackle it were Warren Beatty, uh, also Miloš Forman, and also Roman Polanski among others. Those are just three of the big names that were all vying for the rights. But um, stage producer David Geffen, um, he obtained the rights and hired um, David Henry Huang to adapt his play for the screen. And after the first draft, that's when David Cronenberg entered the picture and signed on to direct. He was so impressed with that first draft. Oh, so it wasn't from him seeing the play. It was more he saw the draft and then went from there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I was I always got the impression it was like he saw it on Broadway and was like I gotta tell this story, kid. No, it doesn't seem like he was um, vying for those rights or anything. It seemed, although I have to wonder, like with David Cronenberg, when you compare him just power wise against like a Warren Beatty or even a Polanski in this period, I don't know that he would be able to compete. No, and when you said Warren Beatty, in my head, I, I thought this this could have been Beatty. The story, I think, Beatty could have done. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's kind of weird enough 
for that, maybe. But yeah, I, I, I think I'm glad it, it, it landed where it did. Right. And I think most people listening will be familiar with David Cronenberg, but Toronto-born writer-director who got his start in the mid-60s. He did a short called Transfer and a couple shorter movies, about a one hour long, um, one called Stereo, Tile B of a C-A-E-E, Educational Mosaic, that's a mouthful to say, and also Crimes of the Future, which he would later revisit and expand upon. And it was the mid-70s, though, where he really began to break through with horror films like Shivers, Rabid, The Brood, before becoming the David Cronenberg we all know and love with big hits like The Fly and then continuing onward to the modern day. This was his follow-up to 1991's Naked Lunch, which we referenced earlier. Um, I feel like Naked Lunch and M. Butterfly back-to-back feels appropriate, but they feel like the two movies that stand a little bit outside of what people expect from Cronenberg. Yeah, I mean, I know Cronenberg always loved Burroughs. Um, he referenced, because he started off as, I think, I think he wanted to be a writer. He started off in like a literary background and then moved into the film school. Um, and so I know he was always a fan of Burroughs and I think was even skittish about doing Naked Lunch because of some of the queer themes and not necessarily knowing how to tackle them, which is interesting because I feel like then he does several movies like this included that have very interesting queer themes. Um, mm. But then also he does... Um, after Videodrome, because Videodrome like kind of bombed uh, when it came out and he was heartbroken because he really loved that movie. After that, he went into a lot of adapted material. Um, and so he The Fly was an adapted piece. Crash uh, was adapted. Um, I think Existens is maybe the only one from around this time that is an original like David Cronenberg screenplay and everything else came from adapted work where I think a lot of them he worked with the writers too to like help bring their piece to the screen. It's always interesting with Cronenberg and that you mentioned, you know, Videodrome did not do well at the box office, but that's the case with so many Cronenberg movies. He's always one of those interesting cases of someone who does not have like this long laundry list of box office smashes, but because he's so impeccable and his style is so unique, he'll always work. Yeah. And then, you know, as he gets into other movies that aren't, um, aren't horror, it's really interesting seeing how he... I don't know, just like takes the themes he's always been interested in and peppers them through completely different stories. Um, like I remember seeing um, Eastern Promises with my mom when I was in high school and not realizing until much later that I had seen a Cronenberg movie and being like, oh, I've actually seen David Cronenberg movies before, but it's in my head, they were completely different. And then when I watched it again recently, I'm like, oh, no, there's actually so much of this that does feel like a Cronenberg movie. It's just taken out of like the horror genre. It's always interesting, too, to me how he will have a hit like The Fly or like Eastern Promises, which do grab a fairly sizable audience. And rather than kind of look at those movies and go, how do I expand that, that audience? He sees them almost like as a ticket to then be able to green light his weirder ideas like maps to the stars is not an accessible mainstream movie but it's one of those ones that follows eastern promises and you know obviously was probably helped financed by the success of eastern promises i always love when people are just like yeah i'll take a big paycheck so i can do a weird project later on like uh like tom noonan is one of those people that like did that a lot like a lot of his acting career is just taking roles here and there so he can like finance a weird movie he wants to make and i always appreciate that 
or right now, um, Bo's Afraid yeah. from Ari Aster True. coming off of Midsummer and Hereditary. Like, that's an ask for a mainstream audience to show up to. Yes. I still haven't seen it, but I can only imagine. It's an experience. I will say that. And it's one of those movies I could never recommend to anyone because it's entirely specific as to whether you'll enjoy it or not. And yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so when it came to bringing M. Butterfly to the screen, they focused on shifting during the rewrites, the kind of the focus away from the politics to the relationship. And this is when like Jeremy Irons came on board shortly after this was a reunion for him and Cronenberg having worked together on Dead Ringers. And more than 60 men tested for the Song Liling role. Alec Mappa um, was circling the role. He had played uh, the character during the Broadway run at points. And at a certain point, it was just it was decided that former Beijing opera performer um, John Lone was going to get the role. And I actually looked up Alec Mappa. He's one of these guys that just worked so much. He's still working today, does a lot of comedy, showed up on basically name your hit sitcoms. He was there. He showed up on Friends, on Seinfeld, had a very consistent run. So it wasn't like it was a one and done opportunity. He continued to work, but he was at one point seen as very much the front runner. I'm not surprised they went with John Lone. Now, I know he had a couple of credits, but I, I would have assumed that you'd want like an unknown going into this because there's this whole gender issue with this film. I say issue, we'll get into that. But disguising one's gender and, and, and living a different life. And if you knew the gender of the actor immediately because you know them from another film... It's almost like a bit of a giveaway, I would I would think, from a certain perspective. So having someone who's more of an unknown to general audiences feels like a an extra leg up in trying to make it more mysterious. No, I think that's very true. Often with you know an unconventional character, especially in 1993, you want an actor that people don't have any baggage attached to at all, mm. and I think that really helps them often come to life. Um, and now this movie. They want to shoot in China, but it took them quite a while to get there. It took them six months of negotiation due to political unrest in the country. Um, there's a, a lot of Toronto fakery going on in this movie um, through necessity. And they also shot in Budapest and Paris. And also notably, this was the first completely digital feature film main title sequence. So those openings with curtains, basically, the door, mm. and then the floating images, that was the first time there'd ever been a completely digital opening title sequence. Wow, I did not know that. Okay. It's seamless stuff. It's actually really well done. You, I, it didn't feel... I mean, it's it feels created, but it's... Yeah, something about it. Wow, yeah. That, and it stands out to me, too. That was a really nice sequence in the film. Yeah. I was surprised to see it, actually, because it took me a moment to be like, wait, this was 1993, and we so often think, well, Jurassic Park is the 1993 movie, and you know, I had Terminator 2 a couple years earlier that really kicked off the digital age, but... Here was M. Butterfly also working in basically CG imagery in their opening credits. It's interesting as well. You mentioned uh, the sort of filming in China and, and the civil unrest. One of the notes I made early on was it reminds me a lot of uh, the Russia House. Mm, yeah. Which famously was like the first Western film to film in Russia post the end of the Cold War. And it's again a spy love story. So I, I had a little note there. So it's interesting that actually there is that connective tissue there. That's a good comparison. Mm. And... Uh, we talked about Cronenberg's spotty box office. This movie was not a hit. It um, made domestically $1.5 million. Yeah. Could not find an international release. 
And so its worldwide total was $1.5 million. It landed at number 181 at the worldwide box office for that year. Between the French film Un Cœur, Un Hiver, starring Emmanuel Bier, who was the female lead of Mission Impossible. Yep. And A Dangerous Woman, starring Deborah Winger and directed by uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal, father of Jake and Maggie. Oh, there you go. Well, I, I, maybe just to contextualize David Cronenberg just a little bit for those who don't know much about him, unlike the two of you, is having David Cronenberg attached as a director in 1993 a big deal? Like, is that is that like is that going to put some butts in seats, as the saying goes, or or is it really like based on trailers and things like that that really to get people in? It, his name will not sell tickets. I feel like it would just confuse people a little bit, especially like. Because, I mean, I guess Naked Lunch isn't really a horror movie, but he does a lot of, like, um, there's a lot of, like, interesting special effects and horror elements that he definitely uses, um, has had used before. Um, but, yeah, like, the jump from Naked Lunch to M. Butterfly, which is, I, I would say, besides, like, the background drop of just the horrors of living in, like, you know, political turmoil. Uh, mm-hmm. There, there isn't really a lot of horror elements to it, so it's, yeah, it's just a very interesting choice. Yeah, I feel like Cronenberg. He's more driven by cult fandom, sure, yeah. and that cult of fandom likes what he does in more of his body horror um, types of films. So I would imagine when they started seeing trailers or posters for M Butterfly, they didn't really know what to make of it, and. I don't know how wide its release really was, if it ever kind of got beyond a smaller platform release with box office like 1.5 million. It doesn't seem to me a movie that was opening in 3,000 theaters over one week. Um, So I just wonder if it was like they were confused by what the movie was and so just kind of passed it because it didn't scream, you know, like The Fly or, you know, The Brood or something like one of these movies we need to track down this weekend. It's kind of like a David Lynch bringing out a buddy cop comedy. Sure. This makes no sense to anyone's head. Like, what is that? (laughs) I would watch that. But, you know, I think of like David Lynch's The Straight Story, which is a fantastic movie, but is like kind of like a small little character drama that doesn't have any of the surrealistic aspects of the stuff really that fans really love in his work. And The Straight Story was not like a huge home run hit. That's for sure. And... The other interesting thing is the timing of this coming out because it came out, uh, I don't know how soon after, but right around the time that The Crying Game came out. And as we'll talk about, those there are very similar themes in those movies. And so I think those two movies have also become just like linked in people's brains somehow. And The Crying Game became this movie that has, I think because it has this big reveal to it, became the the movie that people remembered because of the similar like gender themes that are going on and and butterfly just kind of like fell into into the forgotten territory of film there was quite a bit of commentary about how like the crying game took away from this movie's attention but i I feel like watching the two of them this movie was never going to be an across-the-board mainstream yeah. hit. Whereas, like, The Crying Game plays, I think, very well to just an average audience showing up at a multiplex. Yeah. I can totally see how they would be swept away by the events of The Crying Game. This movie kind of holds people a little bit at a distance. I think that's kind of the, yeah, the dividing line. Which is, I think, a Cronenberg thing in general. <laughs> like, I don't... 
a lot of his movies don't necessarily feel accessible if you're just like, hey, I want to go to the movies with my family on the weekend. <laughs> Let's go see M. Butterfly, everyone. <laughs> and they all have like baseball hats with the M. Butterfly <laughs> stitched on them. <laughs> Sweaters and stuff, everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the full merch kit. Uh, have you got any more in the background, Cam? Yeah, I'll just mention the top three for the year was number one was Jurassic Park. Number two was Mrs. Doubtfire. And number three was The Fugitive. And just a couple of final notes I'll make. John Lone was actually displeased with the final cut of this movie oh. and complained that they'd removed about 20 minutes of material. And um, in 2017, they did a Broadway revival of Huang's play where they actually rewrote aspects of it to acknowledge non-binary uh, genders as well as acknowledge China's development and kind of bring some more true life details from the um, aspect of the story that was true into this newer version. Um, and Huang has continued to work. Um, he is actually uh, attached to co-write a upcoming adaptation of Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, huh. wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Busy man. Still work- he's working for Disney, man. That's the big bucks nowadays. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. Fair play to him. Okay. Well, I think we've charted the course. I think we understand our assignment, but let's talk about M. Butterfly. Tori, I know you've been itching to talk about it. I want you to go first. What do you think? What are your sort of overall thoughts of M. Butterfly? I mean, M. Butterfly is... If you're looking at like the themes of M. Butterfly, it is so complicated and mm. so hard to parse out. And even even having written like a huge like piece on this a couple weeks ago, I still don't know if I can like entirely like parse out everything that's going on here uh, because it is such a complicated love story um, that is just all fueled by deceit and people living in a fantasy world and not really dealing with the realities of of the person that they're with mm-hmm. um so yeah it's it's so complicated but that's also something i really love about it um i think i think it's what makes it such an interesting discussion piece is that after the fact I mean, there's so much of, like, the gender uh, stuff that's interesting, but then also just, like, the political aspect of what's going on, just the underlying, like, racism that's going on, too, with uh, his character. There's so much that is so interesting and complex um, that, like, it's one of those things that, like, I could see again and again and find new things to talk about, which is usually, like, my favorite part of a movie is if... I don't get answers. I don't get all the answers and I don't think I ever will, but mm. that means I can always look at it in a new light and find something new, even depending on the people I discuss the movies with. Uh, and you're right, Tori. There's a lot to sort of unpack with this film, but like just in terms of a, an overarching question, do you enjoy the film? Do you, do you, is it a film you actually like watching? You, you know, you've gone back to it a few times now, I must imagine. Um, no, it's, it's still just the one time and then a lot of reading, reading about hit the work. Um, I have a couple books that are just interviews with Cronenberg and it, um, so I've read a few of his interviews specifically around this movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a movie that like, because I've only seen it once, um, and didn't need to see it again to write Mm. about it, I think speaks for itself too, of just how like vivid, um, and memorable it was. Um, There is something that I think is very beautiful and romantic about a lot of this movie, um, even though 
there is also a lot of like deceit and tragedy that comes along with it. Um, but but yeah, I mean, Cronenberg dialogue in general is something I really enjoy. And there's just so many moments like that are these small, beautiful moments between characters. Um, even when he's talking about like a dragonfly with this man he meets on the street that mm-hmm. I am just always in awe of. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think he the world building of this is really good. And I kind of was immediately enchanted by it. Um, I think John Long gives like an incredible performance. As soon as he came on screen, I was blown away and just totally bought him his song. It made so much sense to me and it made sense why these two, um, I don't know, found an interest in each other and Mm -hmm. were drawn to each other. Um, Yeah, I I really loved it as, I mean, as a Cronenberg movie, definitely. But then as a, I think it's really beautiful and something that probably should be talked about much more than it is. What I thought was really interesting about this movie was that, like, so often with films that are released, there's kind of like the popular interpretation that will take over, say, the Twitter sphere or become kind of the dominant conversation about the movie. And then, like, a lot of the kind of different interpretations feel a little bit outside the box. Like, they have to do a lot more work to kind of bring something to the discussion of whatever movie they're talking about. Whereas I feel like with this movie, if you're to approach it from gender theory, there is untold amounts of stuff to talk about but then you could say well that's not necessarily the way i want to approach it i want to approach it from the point of view of what it's doing with madama butterfly and the history of opera countless stuff to work with um the history of china countless stuff like this movie there's so many different angles you could take it from and that's just really not the case with not a lot of movies that come out nowadays or really any of the things we talk about on this podcast where you could do like multiple episodes on this movie with different specialists bring entirely different angles on the film. And I think that's like a thing that Cronenberg is very specifically good at. Um, A few months ago, I did a podcast about Crimes of the Future with a friend of mine, and I had written about it from the gender and sexuality aspect. And she was specifically looking at it as a movie about like politics and power. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, just the two of us having this like rich conversation about these like different ideas was uh, great. And there are plenty of other like elements to that where you could take and talk about for hours too. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose for me, I was interestingly, I was reading some reviews of this uh, a couple of days ago and I saw this review and I, I, I was, uh, it really bumped me the wrong way. I don't know who wrote it, but they weren't very eloquent, but basically it was something on the lines of, how did he not know that the other guy was a guy? Yeah. And I, and I was like, that is not the point of this film at all. You've completely missed it. To me, it's about, you know, it's that saying, love is blind. To me, the, you know, there's a question very early on, like, are you my butterfly? As if you're like a blind man trying to find something. You're looking for love. He's trying, he's in a loveless marriage. He being the sort of um, Rene Gallimard played by Jeremy Irons sort of protagonist of the film he's looking for love he's looking for a connection with a human being he's lost that with his wife and he finds it in another human being and he sees so much in them he's, he he finds so much in this relationship that he stumbles upon randomly as some sort of uh event that he doesn't see any of the what i guess would be red flags in terms of the spy stuff which is all there he's all he's being used he's very much aware that he's being used he is madly in love with this person and it is love is blind the film to me it's proof in the pudding that you can get lost 
in uh, a relationship with someone and you will and it and for that's where i sort of came at it from of just how far down the well you can really go with losing and giving your life to someone before you wake up one day and realize that you've lost everything including your life uh, by the end of this film due to that one chance event where you bumped into someone uh, doing a song from madam butterfly and i think it's beautiful I think it's absolutely beautiful. I was I was blown away by this film. I watch films famously twice for this podcast to get my head around them. I'm not very good at taking things in the first time. I need a second time to really soak it in. And sometimes I get a bit gristly that like I have to watch this film twice, like two and a half hours. Good Lord, give me a break here. <laughs> this film went down smooth both times. I think I could watch it again. I, I I found so much in it that it's gorgeous. I think I, I want to talk about the cinematography at some point. The world feels so realized. It's sort of the same as the Russia House again, I think, as well, in that sense. And I just love the delicate love story between the two. It feels so real. Like, it, it feels like someone could just... That could just happen to anyone. You could just walk into something and you just fall in love with someone and it, and it just changes your world. Mm. And it's, you know, you mentioned that lousy review from, you know, a while back. And it's like, this was not a movie that was particularly well-received at the time, but it's one now when you log into like Letterboxd and start looking up what people think about M. Butterfly now, Mm. it has a lot more praise and a lot more interest in kind of delving into what it's saying than I think really existed in 93. Yeah, and I know Cronenberg in one of the books I read was talking about how that that was the only thing that people like asked him about when the movie came out was like, a lot of men specifically going up to him being like, I don't understand like how he was fooled. And I know with casting, they tried a bunch of different people who he thought, honestly, he was like, were looked too much like women to the point Mm -hmm. where it didn't, it wouldn't work because the point wasn't that it's supposed to be this big reveal, like, like the crying game where it's this big reveal that this person is a man. Um, because it is all about the fact that these two just meet. Uh, Renee falls head over heels and buys into anything and everything after that, regardless of like anatomy or anything. Um, he just buys into this love story and this this fictional person that is Song, um, and that that is something that I find really interesting about this whole movie. And it's also like he may well have known exactly what was going on and just simply didn't care because he was in love and that is a perfectly reasonable answer and it completely invalidates that reviewer's point and i I mean it was an old review from the year it came out but still i mean yeah backwards opinion of film critique i have to say whoever you were in 1993 but yeah (laughs) clearly did not understand what the wavelength of this film was I, i just I just loved this film, I have to say. It really blew me away. Uh, Cam, did you give us your full sort of what you thought of it? No, I haven't. And I was just going to say, you know, it's based on someone, you know, a true story. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the events that we see in this movie, like even, you know, the child being pregnant with a child, that was something that happened. And, you know, a human being uh, in, you know, the case of the diplomat spy who, you know, was basically honey trapped in this scenario, Mm -hmm. it happened and it happened for 20 years. So it's like, to me, the question isn't like, well, how could he fall for this? Someone, you know, went through this experience and the movie is translating that and paying tribute to both of the individuals involved and recognizing the human connection they have. That's what's interesting about the movie, not as like a gimmick thing, 
which I think in 1993, it would have been perceived as maybe a bit of a gimmick to an audience that really wasn't educated on this type of storytelling. But 20 years later, this movie really holds up well. And yeah, I mean, my thoughts, I was really surprised by this movie because as I said, I really didn't have a great sense as to what it was going in. And I kind of thought of it as sort of the outlier David Cronenberg movie. And that comes from a very uneducated point of view. And then I'm watching the movie and I'm just like, oh my God, it has all the transformation aspects you see in his work. The body horror, the entire sequence when they are on the um, the uh, truck being transported to prison at the end. And John Lone's character is revealing himself as to who he is by taking off his clothes. And the revulsion that Jeremy Irons is going through in that moment, basically having this whatever fantasy he was living kind of stripped away. I'm like... This all feels so Cronenberg. It's interesting to me that this movie is so often acknowledged as being a part of his, like a part as in distant from the rest of his work when really it very much belongs within his canon. And I was just so sucked in at kind of the seductive nature of this movie. Like it is slow burn. Um, it's very, you know, methodic about the way it tells its story. I've heard criticisms about not necessarily exhibiting kind of the, um, the human passion you might get from a different filmmaker. But to me, it's much more about like the intimacy of the characters and the way that it's kind of the nuances, the little moments between them. It's not this sweeping, falling into each other's arms with a soaring score kind of vibe. And to me, it just had me transfixed. It's what, like an hour 45 or something like that. And it just flew by. And, you know, we have watched slower paced movies that are 90 minutes that can feel like an eternity if they're not told well. This one is just just beautiful to watch. Well, let's let's jump on over to things that we did like, which sounds like there's quite a lot of them. Uh, Tori, let's hear from you. Is something you'd like to sort of highlight about the film, moments, uh, characters, performances, anything you'd like to really highlight, something you really liked about M. Butterfly? Yeah, well... Um... Going off that point, um, Cam, about the the lack of passion, I think what I love is that it's it's because it isn't physical between these two characters, or mm. that like isn't the important part of the romance for them. It is very mental because they are essentially crafting a narrative together of what their love story is. Because neither of them is really fully coming into it as them as their full self um so they're really building something entirely different we see him be a completely different person when the relationship with song starts um song is you know going into this because they essentially have to um because of all of the like government upheaval so it's important that song is a really good actor in order to pull all of this off but um even with all of these outside elements they do just create this beautiful story together and I think there is an element of that that is just true in general about relationships because we all transform and change as we grow and sometimes those changes align and bring us together and other times it means that people drift apart um, and sometimes the you know the image we have of a person we loves like fully shatters and crashes before us um, so especially at the end there when he like you know is completely just disgusted when um, song reveals um, himself it doesn't read to me that he is 
disgusted because uh, it's a man. He is disgusted because revealing himself in that way isn't something Song would do. Song in the relationship is this very reserved, sensitive, like quiet person that would, even when they are intimate and have sex, like doesn't fully disrobe. Um, So there is this just... um, trying to think of like the right word for it but like this genteel nature that Mm -hmm. is the thing that is destroyed for him when he when he realizes like what's going on um because song isn't song and that that is so interesting to me because it it's just much more complex than i think a lot of these kinds of love stories might be but that's also I think more reflective of what love is in real life sometimes is these shattered expectations um, and and images that we have of people. I think this is a, a point and a proof point of, of why this film is such a rich tapestry to, to, to sort of go through because that ending point there with Jeremy Irons breaking down, seeing you know his love disrobed, I, I didn't read it in that sense of, him being distraught for that. I, I read it in a sense of, of him being distraught at the loss of the concept. Like, it, it, the what he saw as his butterfly doesn't exist, and so he's having this memory stripped away from him if physically in front of him as, as uh, it's being disrobed. It, I, and that's how I, I took that. But like talking about that, the dynamic, I think, is, is a really interesting thing as well, because I see it as very much like a mentor mentee thing going into it like there's a very much a power dynamic like a dominant and submissive power dynamic going into it but as you say it's not what either of these two people are like in their daily lives you 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 see jeremy irons character before he meets uh, his butterfly and he is as submissive as they come even in his relationship he's very like and he has like an affair again later in the film and he's very much sort of meek when he's with that woman as well in her hotel room but when he is with you know his butterfly he he switches into this different gear all of a sudden he becomes a different person and literally in terms of transformation transformations song liling is becoming a different person to become the butterfly so there is all this again transformation themes but yeah an interesting sort of dynamic between the two of them for sure what i thought was really interesting was that like he has this very imperialist attitude mm-hmm. about very much informed by kind of the culture he would have been soaking up about how, you know, Asian women should be. And he's talking about that. He's watching this opera, which obviously, you know, um, David uh, Henry Huang is quite critical of. It reminded me actually sometimes of um, Black Klansman, the way that Spike Lee was tackling um, Birth of a Nation, the way that Huang Mm -hmm. was kind of criticizing what is being communicated in Madama Butterfly. But you see how that sort of informs the way that he's perceiving her. But at the same time, she, I think, recognizes that he is someone who's quite intellectual. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a spy. He's an accountant. He's driven by kind of details. And the way she challenges his perceptions is, I think, a big part of the attraction is that she is saying, like, I am not the person that you are fantasizing I am. And I think it's that back and forth that draws him in. But he seems constantly battling with his sort of preconceived perceptions versus who the reality of the person is and by the end when you know song is stripping down in the van like there's nothing left all he can perceive is what's in front of him at that point well there's that line when they first meet uh, and he's he's professing his enjoyment of the play and 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 song's like well of course you liked it 
it's it's the westerner's dream of the of the uh, you know asian woman sacrificing herself for the the love that she can't have of a western man and you know how very imperialistic of you and that sort of gets his shoulders up a little bit he's like oh i i, I was just saying how i liked it but he he manages to he actually like changes his tune he goes actually no you've made a very valid point and she goes oh come and continue your education in a real theater basically and see a real show and that begins his intrigue and and it all goes from there but like a tiny little exchange of dialogue but you learn a lot about the characters yeah and it's Mm -hmm. interesting because the part that sticks out to me too is later on when he has then gotten into this position of power at work Mm. and he's like advising them on how to like deal with like the people of China he says something along the lines of like oh well the Chinese want to submit because that's what he feels has happened in his relationship with Song Um, he's like you know gotten her to a point where they like are physical they are in a relationship and so he's like yeah of course like because I have this like one relationship I know what all Chinese people are like and so this is what we need to do to like win in this situation uh which of course bites him in the ass later um but I find that to be so interesting because there are times where I really want to feel for him and feel bad for him but even when he is educated in some ways there is still that just like prevailing like imperialist attitude and those like underlying like orientalist kind of ideals um that that make it a little hard to feel like totally bad for him in this situation and there's always this perception of like the outsider who's wandered in and is like i understand all of this Mm -hmm. and that's one thing like song keeps mentioning throughout is like just the ancient traditions or how far back china goes and he's like yeah 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 don't worry, I got all this. You know, he's he's so clueless that it completely makes sense why he's such a prime target for them to try to flip and get the these documents they need. But he is so much driven by his own arrogance in terms of feeling like he understands this culture. I, I get the feeling that like in his own life, and you do see snippets of it in like his in his marriage and things like that, that he just feels like he's lost agency. Hmm. And this relationship is a way of him to take control of his life. And, and, and it all starts to go his way because he, he meets Song and then he gets a promotion at work and he gets to have these two relationships running concurrently. Plus he has another like other bit on the side as well with that, that German consulate person, I think, or something like that. It's all sort of going his way for a while and he feels that power and he's growing in his own confidence. So I, And that, I think, just adds to the intoxication of this relationship that he fell into. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Cam, throwing over to you, something you want to talk about. Well, I mean, the two central performances to me are just so crucial. And I mean, Jeremy Irons, this was that period of Jeremy Irons where he was known for taking like really kind of risky roles, like because he did Damage, um, which was about a man having an affair with his son's um, girlfriend. And then he also did Lolita a couple years later, a remake of Lolita. Um, and so it was like, Jeremy Irons was known to kind of take on these challenging roles and working, you know, with Cronenberg on Dead Ringers, where he played twins. That's also like a very outside the box type of performance. And I think like he's so crucial here because he has a tough ask, which is that you have to feel somewhat sympathetic for his heartbreak and just complete destruction of self. And yet, at the same time, you have to be very critical of him and also acknowledge that he is a very flawed person with 
often very arrogant attitudes. I think that's a very tough balancing act to pull off. And yet he does it in a way that's so not flashy. Like you can understand why there was no Oscars being showered on this man this year, because it's such like a quiet performance that it doesn't have those kind of like scream to the rafters moments that are so popular with the Academy, Mm. but it's such an intense performance. And I mean, John Lone, I haven't seen John Lone in a lot. He doesn't work, I don't think, very much anymore. I think the only thing I've seen him in that I can think of was playing the villain in the Alec Baldwin film, The Shadow, which was uh, not a great film, I will say. I think that was actually the follow-up to this movie. But I mean, he was just mind-blowing to me in his ability to just create this character of song where I so completely bought into them as a, as a person. But then at the end, to have the stripped-down version, or even the, the song who's in the courtroom testifying, and feels like so different to me in a way where it's like I can see the same characters there but there's like just kind of the disguise that he's worn and then to see him revealed where it's like they both feel the same and yet different and I think like that's a very very difficult thing to pull off and John Lone does it very well and without any sort of like trickery or anything like that in the part of the film to try to kind of build up more of a disguise. It's also important in the sense of like to do it without any sort of silliness like it has to have a, mm-hmm. a a deadly seriousness to it which there is an underlying seriousness to the story firstly because it's based on a real event so like it doesn't there's no like i mean you think of spy movies that have done people in in drag as an example like i think of like diamonds are forever you charles gray in, in as blofeld and drag that's completely silly right that is played yeah. for laughs this is a completely different thing. This is a person who is, has become a different person to portray this role. This is deadly serious. And I, I think the film knows that and, and keeps that in mind at all times. I also think like Song as a character is supposed to be a little bit unknowable to the audience. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they are enigmatic. Like when the movie's over, I have like a real takeaway, like an emotional takeaway from that character that lingers. I think you actually learn more about Song's character when they're not with Jeremy Irons. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a moments where like they're 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 communist like handler, it's like spy master handler kind of person, and they're chastising a, a Song for staying in character and reading these like Western magazines and things like that. But and you can see inside that there's a want. I I read it as like a want to be this, to live this life, and there's like a calling to that maybe that's just my coding on it but like that's how i saw it and like there's the the moment in the plane right at the end when they're being taken home and to, to china where there, there seems to be like a look of sorrow uh, uh, the the havoc that they've caused and i just yeah it's all subtle little moments in that mm-hmm. there's this uh transformation is like a big thing but i think another idea in cronenberg movies that goes along with that is this idea of like fusion um and like characters that aren't whole and need some sort of fusion with something else and that is kind of what gets them on the other side or or not um like the fly is a good example of that video drums like that even dead ringers is essentially like a fusion of two people that are like two halves of a whole um and i think there's a similar idea here too where i think at first you just think about how you know song is 
like playing him, but there's there's a real need for him too. Um, mostly because I think that if Song doesn't have this assignment, she'll be sent to one of these like horrible work camps. But mm-hmm. but then there is also this element of like why does Song like want to be with him? And I think that goes into the idea of maybe there was something unlocked here and they realized that they do like living as a woman and being with Renee gives them the freedom to fully be this new person. Um, And I think that's an interesting idea too. Which is also kind of in the, you've mentioned the sort of the the camp scene later on where they're like a work camp, labor camp sort of thing where they've stopped being a spy basically and, and Song is sent there to do work instead. But you think about that for a second. All these people that were sent there were like creatives and and and, and teachers and artists and things like that. Now you, this whole whole story starts with Song doing a, a a performance from Madame Butterfly. Clearly, a gifted artist. They're not able to live that life in this new communist China that is slowly growing in the country. That's how I read it, anyway. And. So there's also a longing for wanting to live the life that they've trained for, that they want to, but they cannot do under the regime that in which they live. So the only way to do it is by living as a spy and having this double life. So of course there is a calling to want to be that because it allows them to be what they truly are and, and, and wish to be. And I thought that this movie also did a very good job and something, Scott, you and I talk about all the time, which is like the cost of espionage mm. in these more serious films. And... So much of this movie is obviously driven by its human story and the connection between the two characters. But in terms of the job of espionage, you really get the sense of just the burden on Song through this mission and how they're going to carry this story with them, this mission, you know, through the rest of their life. It's going to have a significant impact. And there's so many, I think, very good, straightforward spy stories that just show how espionage breaks you down. But few of them feel as like emotionally shattering as this film does. Well, I, I'll I'll draw a quick sort of uh, correlation between another film that I noticed, especially the ending. We're talking about Song being taken back to China and sitting on the plane, and there's a moment of reflection. It reminded me very much of the one of the final scenes of Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. Yeah, where Mark Rylance's character is being taken back to I think it's East Berlin. That, no, it's, it's to the KGB and taken. You know, back to Russia because they've been, you know, repatriated basically. And you find out that they're probably not going to have a very good fate as they get into that car. And there's that moment as you look back at Tom Hanks, and there's this just this like sadness there hangs in the film for a couple of seconds. And it's that exact melancholy that I saw on that plane heading back to China. Mm. Yeah. Um, in terms of likes for me, there's a few, there's probably quite a few to get into. So I'm just going to quick fire a couple of ones I really liked. Starting with Silly and working my way down. Hmm. I loved Ian Richardson's spy master working in the French embassy. <laughs> he is clearly uh, not suited for this role because he uh, promotes Rene. But he is having a blast the entire film just messing around with all these other spies and just letting them fight each other. Just fun to watch. Ian Richardson's great in a couple of other spy films we've tackled on the show as well. Nice to see him in another film. I mentioned the cinematography by Peter Sujitsky, I believe it's how you pronounce the name, up front. Wonderful stuff. I mean, there's some like really could be mundane settings, alleyways in China, but somehow they're brought to life. 
it just feels like you're literally there. That could have been because that was actually where it was shot in China. That could have been those scenes. But still, brought to life, much like the Russian house, like I mentioned earlier. The score is also, I think, really good uh, from Howard Stone there. All the way from the credits that Cam mentioned earlier on, throughout the whole film, there's like a little, I think it's like a hero melody that plays from time to time throughout the film that's really well put together. I'm guessing this all probably comes from the sort of stage version, or some of it at least. Um, but yeah, very, very good stuff. I am just going to, as a final like, just tip my hat to, I think, Jeremy Irons. Uh, Cam did do that too, sort of with both actors, but I just think it, it's... As you said, Cam, I think it, there's a lot to ask of, of Jeremy from this performance, and I think he does it very well. And, you know, for me, growing up, Jeremy Irons was very much like Dungeons and Dragons. You know, that. Oh, my God. Like, that was. <laughs> that's the go to. That's my Jeremy Irons experience <laughs> in the past. You know, like, I, that's a completely out there performance. This, I, I hadn't really seen much of this from Jeremy Irons until I started doing the show and experiencing a few more of his performances. And uh, this is fantastic from Jeremy. I like that you didn't say The Lion King. You went straight to Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> that was, I mean, I'd seen The Lion King, of course, but like Dungeons, like you, you're physically seeing Jeremy Irons. That's like, that's how I know Jeremy Irons. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to also agree with you on like the cinematography in particular. This is based on a play mm. and there are so many stage play adaptations that feel very kind of creaky. Like they haven't adapted the stage to the screen in a real dynamic way. And this feels like so incredibly well done. And partly as Cronenberg understands visual language incredibly well and knows how to make something that feels cinematic, but it's kind of unbelievable that it was a play because it feels like a very sweeping movie story. Yeah, it, it well, it, it's got that sort of like romance flick thing going on about it. It was very wistful and sort of like a love letter to, to China at times and like sort of the locales that are in there. And then you contrast that with like when he's in France towards the end of the film and everything's just grotty. Yeah. Like it's almost like there's like a, a slight like tint on the lens when they're in China. Like there's a little bit of like Vaseline that makes it look a bit nicer. And, uh, you know, and then, yeah, it's just horrible in Paris, apparently. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at Spyhards HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spyhards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Want to have some fun in the sun in style? Well, you know what? Now's the perfect time to catch up on our June offerings. That's right, our reviews of 12 Angry Men and Meteor, as well as our latest episode of The Debrief, where we're talking about Secret Invasion, Mission Impossible, and so much more. Let those good times roll. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Well, let's jump on over to dislikes. I haven't got too much to say on this matter. Cam, I'm going to throw to you first. Something you want to just sort of talk about. This is a real struggle, Scott, and that I don't really have anything noted. Wow. <laughs> for dislikes. Like, it's such a specific vision for a movie. Mm -hmm. Like, it does feel like Huang and Cronenberg 
created the movie they set out to capture. So I can say, like, would I have liked a little more about the espionage world within the film? Yeah, I would have been interested to know, to know a little more details as to what Jeremy Irons is doing. But that's then asking for things that don't exist within the text of the movie. It's just like, I would be interested in knowing more about that. And I think that's a good sign of a movie is when it can deliver its story. And there's elements of it that you would like to see even more of. You know, so often we complain movies are too long, especially when you're watching like, a, you know, uh, like a three hour blockbuster, which is a weird thing that happens nowadays. How did you manage to turn your dislike into a like? <laughs> skill skill baby <laughs> years of practice i think that's what that was sure there. yeah uh well i i think i can contribute one okay that's helpful and this is something that jumped out to me because i'm an idiot mm. so it, it it's it's very easy for me to see these sort of flaws you know i had a little bit of trouble the first time round, better in the second time with the film basically just assuming you'll catch up Right. There's yeah. there's like a couple... It, it doesn't really hold your hand particularly well. Not that it should, folks. I know you're listening and screaming at me in your headphones. I'm sorry. It shouldn't hold your hand. I totally get that. But like there's moments where like there's a time jump of like 20 years. It doesn't say 20 years later or there's no like newspaper with a date that's different or something to visually cue you in that time has changed. But you, you just kind of find out eventually that time has changed. Uh, there's a pregnancy that is begins... And then immediately there's a child, and then immediately the child's gone. And it, but this is massive time jumps in between it. You're just left to kind of figure out what happened. Totally fine. Again, we're spy experts on this show. Our listeners are all spy movie experts. We're good at deducing things. But I, I don't know. There could have been something in the fore, in the background of something, or as I say, newspaper dates, or some sort of story somewhere that could explain it, or a diary entry, or whatever. Uh, it, just to make it a little bit easier for the idiots like myself. The child aspect is actually a really good point to bring up because, you know, this was based on the real events that happened. But you get the moment where Song moves away to go give birth and then brings him back the child. And just from an espionage point of view, that's a fascinating part where you have Song saying, I need a, you know, a baby with basically blondish hair. Mm. And they set out to achieve this and make this happen. I mean... That's not the sort of thing we're going to stumble across too often in spy movies going forward, I would have to imagine. But you get the moment of Jeremy Irons with the child, and you can see that it's had an impact on him meeting it for the first time. And yet, like, there's never a moment later where he's like, so how's how's the kid doing? (laughs) There's never a sense of like, what happened to this kid? Are they still around? I don't know. Visiting like a relative? I don't know. Where have I been sending these cards to every year? What's (laughs) going on? Was there a birthday party at any point? No? Okay. Do I owe allowance? What's going on? Yeah. Okay. Does it like opera? I like opera. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, it's it's a tiny critique. And again, it's based on a real story. So it's kind of hard to like pick flaws in the story because it's based on reality. Uh, I, I suppose I'm picking more flaws in the fact that this real life person fell for the story in a sense. But yeah, just as, as a, like a viewing experience, a tiny bit jarring. Now I'm just thinking of Baby's First, like opera makeup kit, like has all the like little like. <laughs> it, it's got it's got the yeah it's got the little lipstick and then a, a mirror which has a very sharp edge for some reason. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let that near your kids, kids. Yeah. Uh, Tori, I'm going to throw it to you. Is there anything you could discuss in terms of like dislikes or nitpicks? Yeah, I so now like thinking about it, I'm I was thinking about how um, 
Cam had mentioned that there was like 20 minutes that are cut out of the movie. And I was wondering, like, since John Lon seemed to be upset about that, if that is like more just time with song, uh, because I do think that so much of the movie is focused on Iron's character that although I love all of the time that um, Song is on screen, I, I think I could have used more time with Song, even if it's like not substantial, like, you know, moments that maybe tell us more about that character. But I just think Song is such an interesting character that I want to spend more time with her. So I think more of those little moments of just watching her kind of without Renee and seeing, you know, what she's doing, I think that maybe would be something that's good for the film. Um, But Cronenberg is like a guy that like barely goes over 90 minutes most of the time. So the fact that this is like an hour 40 something is even him like pushing it a little bit. You're, You're just happy with the extra 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I actually an excellent sort of suggestion, and maybe this is where the twenty minutes were. But like very early on, you you see Song in a theater, uh, like a Chinese theater, doing a, a Chinese play, and you see there's all the behind the scenes. It's all going. It's all very fast action behind the scenes. Everyone getting ready, changing costumes as it as happens with stage performances. It's all a mess backstage, but. I, that little world there, that little macrocosm of a world there. I'd be nice to see like how Song is navigating that. Like, is everyone in there also spies? Are they all on board with it? What yeah. is going? Or do they all know yeah. what's going on? Or is that why the song's kind of tarped off at the back? What's all? What's all this? Like that would have been an interesting maybe five minutes. Well, I was thinking of when Clint Eastwood made Flags of Our Fathers. What a um, jump. Yeah, what well, with the uh, you know the Iwo Jima <laughs> battle, right, where he was sure. so fascinated making that movie that he then turned around and made letters from Iwo Jima, telling it from the Japanese perspective. I would totally watch, you know, M Butterfly followed by the partner film told entirely from Song's perspective. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, I'd be on board. Well, I like this film, so of course I'd be on board. Yeah. Okay, so I think we'll start to wrap it up now with sort of the final notes section. Tori, do you have anything you'd like to share with us? Um, I mean, most of it's just more musings on how much I love everything about this movie. I think one thing I find really interesting is knowing now that um, a fair amount is shot in Canada is really mm. interesting. Um And I'm saying this as an outsider and someone who hasn't even been to Canada a lot, but one of the things I love about Cronenberg is specifically how he shoots Canada. It's like in a way that I've never really seen like other films set in Canada shot. Um, So the fact that he's able to then transform it into an entirely different country, I find very fascinating. Um, And then I also just think that uh, one thing that I really love about Song's character especially in that first meeting is how much she pushes back on irons. Mm. There's a line that I now think about all the time, which is um, she says, how can you objectively view your own values? And that's something that just has stuck with me since the movie. And I just now think about it all the time. Um, And I just, I think especially like right now, it's actually like in the US, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And so it, I think is a good time to kind of reflect on on some of these ideas around identity and like cultural values and also like cultural appreciation. Yeah, it's actually I hadn't thought of that line since I've seen the film. But now you said it, I think that will probably stick in my brain. That's actually a really wonderfully written sentence. I think that I, I imagine that's uh, straight from the play. Um, 
in terms of final notes myself i had a couple the first one is more of a silly story uh my original version of watching this film uh was through a, a somewhat like an internet thing to find it. I had trouble finding it originally. And it didn't have subtitles. And there's a conversation we mentioned earlier with the dragonfly. And there's a man speaking in a language I'm not familiar with. There was no subtitles. And I thought, oh, there's a lot of dialogue going on here that I'm not hearing. Maybe I should, maybe I should, I'll go and pay for a full copy of this so I can watch the full version so I can understand what's being said. And then I get to the film and I watch the subtitled version. It just says mumbling. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that wasn't worth it at all. Thanks for that. That's uh, that's five pounds. Thank you very much, sir. Although I would pay that again for this film. I have a comment and a question left over. Firstly, putting them together in a van at the end seems like really poor work from the prison services. <laughs> Dramatic license. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll take it at that, but that that seems like it's gonna break some uh some like operating procedures there. It's probably against the law, I would say. Uh, and in terms of a question I had for everyone, and we started at the top by saying none of us have really seen Madame Butterfly, the mm. proper the actual play itself, and we all seem to have had a very good time with this film. Do you think having being able to see it would influence and inform your viewing of this film? I'm not sure. Yeah, I I think it would probably fill in some gaps that the mm -hmm. movie is assuming yeah. just with shorthand that you're going to kind of be able to connect some dots in terms of the story of Madame Butterfly. But I think in that, I mean, any sort of context you're going to get is going to help your experience in some way or at least inform it a little more. But I don't know mm -hmm. that like it would contribute a whole deal to kind of the power of the relationship dynamic, which is what I draw from the movie. It would be more like filling in other details that make it more rich. Sure. I, I think I probably come down the same on it as well. I'd be interested to know what you all think online. Let us know if you've seen it, if that helped your viewing of the film. Cam, did you have any final notes for us? Well, I feel like people listening might like to hear our thoughts just on the ending where we have Jeremy Irons' performance and suicide I in real life. You know, the um, the spy there who wound up in, pr in prison was released six years later. There was no big dramatic, you know, death tied to his story. Um, but I was just curious what you guys thought of that ending. Sorry, why don't you leave yourself on that one? Um, it, it definitely feels like the right ending for Renee. Um, the, the way that Renee is left after everything that has happened, he is just a shell of a person. And it seems like he wasn't holding it together that well before he met Song anyway. <laughs> so it seems like as the fact that the relationship is shattered beyond belief, uh, I mean, all he can really do in those final moments is like become Song at the end there and do that performance and then, um, and then die uh it seems like that is just the it makes sense for his character that like that is how things end because i don't really see how he given everything we know about this character then goes on to have a a normal well-adjusted life after the fact well it's interesting too that in sort of adopting songs persona in the performance he's adopting the stage performance so he's not mm -hmm. even conjuring up the person. He's conjuring up the character that Song played on the stage, just showing that even in his final moments, he still doesn't understand who Song truly was. 
Yeah. See, I, I took that the other way around. He was actually finally understanding the play because the sacrifice is mm. the fact that he'll that the 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 Madame Butterfly will never have that love again. Um, if I remember the story of Madame Butterfly correctly, uh, Madame Butterfly who got with an American like soldier who uh, and uh, I think was trying to get a a wife, and then that soldier goes back home and has kids with an American person and they come back finally just to China one last time and just to say, are you never going to see me again? Basically, this love is over. We're done, kaputs. And then she's sad and forlorn and, and kills herself in that moment knowing that she can never have the life that she had held so dear. And I think that is exactly what Jeremy Irons is doing. He can never go back to where he was. He is Madam Butterfly and he finally... His you know, his cocoon opens and he becomes the butterfly. Well, I think an aspect of this movie is that both work. Both interpretations actually could be happening simultaneously in that ending. And that was something, you know, I mentioned earlier on was there's so many different ways to approach this story that, you know, I approach that ending from a different point of view, not even taking into really uh, mind the context of the opera, which mm. is obviously very important as well. Like there's so much here probably answers my question from before as well yeah i when i what i think which is interesting is maybe a combination of the two which is like in that last moment that they're together it's clear that he completely rejects the idea of getting to know the like actual true person that is in front of him mm. and that those final moments he is just retreating back into the story and the this like narrative and this you know and and the musical because he like he can't deal with like the complex reality of like what has actually happened between these two and what it would look like for them to even i don't know try to like build something after the fact um it's it's all about the fantasy and the story um mm. and then there's also maybe i don't know some sort of like loose exploration of gender identity for him in those final moments too mm -hmm. yeah for sure uh cam any other notes for us um i didn't really have a lot else um just that this is a beautiful looking movie and i think there should be a 4k out there oh yeah and hopefully it happens I, the problem is with a movie like this it doesn't have the fanfare behind it demanding these releases but it would be very nice to see m butterfly given like a 4k kino or criterion or something like that between tories writing on this film this podcast coming out we can start that movement yes. <laughs> there you go <laughs> we put the m in m butterfly right now <laughs> oh i did have actually another note though um in terms of spycraft i like the moment mm. where they were debugging the room and basically giving false information into the into little mics yeah, And just being like, well, this is going to mess with them. Um, the movie doesn't have a lot of espionage-heavy stuff. That's the Ian Richardson stuff, yeah. It's yeah, just yeah. having fun with it. It's just messing around the whole film, yeah. Yeah, but there's enough little like spy moments there that I think are a lot of fun. Oh, this is definitely far more a spy film than some of the films we've tackled on this show. Oh, Undoubtedly yeah. so. But, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not a problem there. Well, okay, it's the final question of this show, the knock list. Can we have a guest? Can you just talk, Tori, and our listeners through exactly what the knock list is? Yes, the knock list is our tortured acronym for Need to See Official Classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where every week after we watch a movie, we debate whether it belongs on the list of all-time great spy films, um, some ones that have made it on the list, uh, Goldfinger, 
Um, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale made it on, as well as things like North by Northwest, the Shersha Ronan film Hannah, um, Three Days of the Condor. It's a wide assortment of spy films on there. So that's kind of the idea. And we will, I think, uh, vote on whether M. Butterfly belongs in that esteemed company. Absolutely. Three votes. So, Tori, you're the guest. Guests always get the first vote. Yes or no, do you think M. Butterfly deserves to be on a list of the best spy movies ever made? Um, well, I am not a spy movie expert, but I... Nor are we. From... <laughs> More so than I am, though. Um, I, From my perspective, I think yes. And that you might have examples of other movies doing this really successfully. But I think as far as the emotional and human aspect of, like, just what this kind of, like, deep undercover, like, spy work can do to people and the effect mm. it has on people, potentially, I think is very fascinating to explore. Okay. That's one yes. This, this, uh, it's all to play for, really. It really depends on what happens on the second vote then, Cam. So it's over to you, sir. What do you think? It is a yes for me as well. I think it's interesting in that this movie is... I think perceived as more of a relationship drama, but it is also like one of the really great intimate like explorations of the cost of espionage. It's mm -hmm. just not doing it in the kind of the flashy spy movie way that I think people often associate with entries in the genre. This is kind of maybe an oddball uh, candidate for the knock list, which is what makes it really valuable. We want the list to have all sorts of types of spy films. And I think, um, I like the idea of a little Cronenbergian weirdness being on the knock list. I think that's really cool, and this movie deserves more attention. Well, there you go. Two yeses. So my vote is completely useless, but you're going to hear it anyway. It's an absolute yes for me. From the first viewing, I knew this was making the knock list. I, I mean, Cam, you're right. It's an unconventional spy film. But that's what we do here is unconventional. We are not formulaic in any sense when it comes to our our very long search of the best spy movies of all time. I love the idea that we have a like you say, like the cost of espionage in this film and this like this such as this rich text. And I want people to find the knock list in ten, fifteen years time and you know, however we distribute it eventually. And gain something from it mm. and, and maybe it's not just a list of the best spy movies ever and that's that's it it is the best spy movies but it, it teaches something at the same time you know some of the sort of oddball things we've got on there like ghost in the shell the original version that's a very oddball choice but it tells you a lot about espionage it's a, it's a very different type of spy film and a very human connection despite the fact that they're all cyborgs uh, you know there's a lot to it and this is for me kind of one of those entries where it, it may not be what you would expect from the list of the best spy movies ever but when you finish watching it i can guarantee you will have learned a little bit about spy movies and probably a little bit about yourself by the end of it too mm -hmm. well said well there you go folks three yeses and uh, i'm very happy to say that m butterfly is making the knock list the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified tory you absolute star you have uh, ventured onto the podcast uh, as the Cronenberg expert, and not only have you guided M. Butterfly onto the knock list, but you've also given us another film that we're going to add to our list to tackle as well. So you're a double gift, if anything. 
Oh, well, thank you so much for letting me uh, talk about Cronenberg and pretend to be an expert. It's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't hard to convince you to talk about Cronenberg. I think I no. got half the email out. And you're like, yeah, I'll do it. When do I, when do I start? Um, but yeah, for we'll have links in the show notes below to everything, of course. But you know, for the listeners, where can they find more from you online? I believe you have a podcast as well. Yes, we are on indefinite hiatus because I have just been too busy and there's a lot of research that goes into it. Uh, but uh, I am the co-host of the Killer Bees podcast and we profile different B-movie stars. We've done people like Pam Greer, who is amazing, Yafet Koto, um, Mako Kaji, um, tons of people that we love. Um, but you can find uh, my writing at Movie John. I'm a staff writer there. You can also find uh, me on Twitter, Instagram. Um, tiktok the neon banshee and yeah i have some stuff coming out soon i have a pride month piece i'm really excited about for june and um a video essay that i made with a bunch of amazing people um and those will be coming out later this year too very nice wonderful wonderful we'll we'll have links to everything in the show notes below but yeah tori it's been an absolute blast thanks for coming on board yeah thank you so much for having me well there you go that was our chat about david cronenberg's M Butterfly, I'm very glad it made the Noculus cam. Yes, yeah, so am I. Um, the Noculus is getting, I think, more and more interesting as the podcast has gone along. You know, when you look at, say, like year one for the show, it's a lot of kind of the obvious choices. Some of the key mm-hmm. bonds, um, Three Days of the Condor or Bridge of Spies, movies like that. Whereas I feel like as we continue to evolve the podcast, it's getting a little more a little more interesting, a little quirkier with some of the entries there. Which I think goes to show like our evolution of what we look for in a spy movie, I think is being refined over time. Hmm. I think we're beginning to appreciate more of the the ability of this genre to flex. Yeah, very true, yeah. Uh, yeah, but let's save that discussion for another day. Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are we talking about next week? Well, Scott, we've got more high art on the way. We are tackling the 2011 remake of The Mechanic, starring Mr. Jason Statham. Yet for all those who loved Arthur Bishop the first time round with Charles Bronson, it's back with another uh, Hollywood silent man, basically, who likes to beat people up, Jason Statham. Uh, I've not seen this one either. I'm interested to see what they do with the Arthur Bishop character. Yeah, no kidding. I mean... The original, there's a lot of kind of very subtle elements to the movie that I think there's a lot of room to flesh out. We mm-hmm. will see if they do that. And and let's be honest, after seeing Jason Statham in the Fast spin-off, I, I don't think he does subtle very well. That's a stay tuned for the future of Spy Hards as well. A, a Statham tuned. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Save that for next week, Scott. Yeah. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next time on the show as we tackle 2011's The Mechanic. If you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S P Y H A R D S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but until next time, the days I spent with you were the only days I ever truly existed. (laughs) 